And I thought, all right, let's build a portfolio basically for myself, I was thinking. And uh, I ended up coming up with this name originally of 10T, which stands for 10 trillion. And where does that come from? That comes from the idea that the value of the ecosystem, which in the middle of 19 was 300 billion, that's all the value of all the cryptocurrency and the value of all the equity in the space was 300 billion. And I said to myself, where can this really go? And so I said, look, realistically, it can definitely get to 10 trillion, 10T. That's a 30X in the life of the fund in 10 years. Hey, Dan, great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. So Dan is the founder, CEO, CIO, and managing partner at One Round Table Partners and 10T Holdings. 10T is a mid to late stage growth equity fund that invests in private companies operating in a digital asset ecosystem. And I read on, on your Twitter, uh, I believe this is right, but am I right in saying you own five goats? Uh, so that's a very interesting description that no one has ever asked me about, <laughs> ever. And so those five goats are the five people who I've worked for in the first 20 years of my life, which was uh, in the investment world. And so goat, as you know, is greatest of all time, right? And so the five guys who I worked for, Julian Robertson, Michael Steinhardt, Steve Cohen, Stan and Miller, and Lord Jacob Rothschild. And wow. so each one of those men are, I think, considered goats or a goat or the goat in their respective areas. And so I put that up there because that's sort of part of my Twitter bio. It's my way of saying that's what I did in the first 20, 25 years of my life. And um, it's interesting. No one has ever asked me about that. But it's there because that's part of my life. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. And who was um, the last person you worked with in that journey? Is it Stan Drucker Miller or someone like that, or that earlier? Well, actually, it was back at Steve's place. I did a stint with Steve, left to go work with Stan, and then came back to Steve. Yeah, ended up in total working for Steve for about 10 years. And actually sat right next to him probably for about five years. I didn't trade equity. I was the macro. So I focused on bonds, currencies, emerging markets, commodities, ran my own portfolio there. You know, Steve and I for a while managed an account together as well in macro. But yeah, that was a great experience. You know, Steve's perspective is incredible. He's a little different stylistically than me. I tend to be more sort of long-term and macro and Steve more short-term and equity trading. But, you know, that was part of, I guess, the synergy that worked. I don't think there are that many people that worked 10 years at uh, SAC, or now it's called Point Seven Two. But yeah. at the time, we had a good, uh, it was a good fit there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great to have that experience with five incredible people of that. Well, let me just, let me just say this. What it does is it um, hones your process. And so... My investment process isn't something that's just come out of thin air. It's come as a result of having worked with those five goats and all the different things that I learned from them. 
And at the same time, I have my own track record, DTAP Capital, which is my own entity that I launched in 03, still exists today, not active, but the entity exists today. And, you know, I have my own 16-year track record managing a portfolio, and that's with daily marks and weekly, uh, monthly, you know, living sort of right, you know, right on the edge and not a relaxing existence, but it ended up being, you know, highly rewarding. And so uh, I mentioned five goats in my Twitter because that's really an important part of my life and process uh, that I used to actually make investment judgments for 10T and uh, will do so for 1RT, uh, which actually is launching, having its first close in July. And we already have a few hundred million coming in. And again, 1RT's strategy is pretty much the same, I would say. Uh, but with a little bit different spin than 10T in terms of building a portfolio of companies, private companies in the blockchain, Web3, crypto you know, space. I, I call it all three because you know, different people call it different things. But these are the larger companies uh, in the space that we're focused on, companies really with revenue over you know, $40, $50 million. They're at their growth stage, not venture. And 10T, thankfully, we had three funds. No more go forward funds, but we're still super active for the LPs and looking out for co-invest opportunities. And of course, realizations, we've invested in 26 companies in the two and a half years, invested $1.2 billion in 26 businesses. You know, we now sit on about, I think it's 11 boards, have 350 investors. Uh, It's been, you know, a great you know, very exciting run, similar to your own at Optos, where just three years ago, you've moved from having, what did you say to me before? Zero to 100,000? Yeah, 100,000, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just fantastic. So anyway, well done on you. <laughs> and how many um, sort of these growth stage companies exist in the blockchain space nowadays? Is it growing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So when I started the fund and had the idea for it in the middle of 2019, There were only 14 companies in the world that had a market cap over a billion dollars. And I would say probably not more than 15 or 20 that had a market cap of over 400 million. And in the beginning, people used to say to me, Dan, you know, this is a great idea. But the reality is, is that there aren't enough companies for you to invest in. And so I thought, well, maybe that's true in the beginning, but there are going to be a lot of companies. And so, you know, I would say half the first investor meetings I had w- was dealing with that question and convincing people that, yes, this world will grow. And of course, today, there are over 100 companies in the space that have a value of over a billion dollars and probably 150 over 400 million. That's down from around 240 or so a year ago at the peak. But still, I mean, you're talking about a very you know, large universe of companies, I still don't understand why I'm the only active fund in the space. I'm an old time macro guy, you know, and I would have thought that some of the more traditional private equity guys, or even some of the, you know, very successful venture funds would have moved from focusing on seed and A round to some of the later, you know, stages B and C. But again, it's a very different strategy. 
I don't do venture. I don't invest in the cryptocurrency themselves. I'm not trading. It's a private equity fund, 10-year life. And, you know, we're very careful about valuation of the 26 companies I purchased. I did not pay over 10 times revenue for any of them. So I passed on, you know, FTX and Celsius and BlockFi. And we passed on companies that we liked as well, like Fireblocks and Copper and Alchemy. They were trading at valuations that were just astronomical in the second half of 21 and 22. And so we were very careful. And then we deployed a large chunk of our capital in Q4 of the remaining fund three, because I really think the low for the space uh, happened essentially right after the FTX collapse. And I say that because, you know, if I think about what could be the most negative thing that could happen for the space, it was this guy SBF going from a hero to a fraud in a matter of six weeks. And I just think that we're not going to have anything as negative as that. And on the announcement of that news, the Ethereum price couldn't make a new low. The Bitcoin price went down, but then came back. And as all old time sort of traditional traders know, that's what's called a bullish divergence. When the selling has dried up because you've had the worst news possible and the price of the underlying asset can't make a new low, that generally means, you know, the bear phase, which we'd been experiencing for over a year, was finished. So I deployed $120 million into eight different businesses. And, you know, therefore, our third fund was fully invested after that point. So I am careful about entry. I think it's important. Um, And what's happened now is that the valuations for many of the companies that we passed on have come in dramatically. And so right now, we're raising, as I mentioned, another fund under the one roundtable partners you know, heading. And all the employees, by the way, of one uh, roundtable are also employees of 10T. And so that's my team of 14 people. And we're just excited to get going and also to be in a situation where we don't really have that much competition now, if any at all, especially in the secondary. So there's a, a pretty active secondary market. I know I've gone on here and you can stop me whenever you like. It is pretty exciting now that, you know, after having been on the sidelines for much of 22, all of a sudden we can buy stock at sort of the prices that we wanted to buy 18 months ago, two years ago. And the perfect example really is Consensus. Consensus is a company that we're very excited about. We originally wanted to lead it around at around a $2 billion valuation. Someone else came in, paid a $3 billion valuation. That was about 18 months ago. So we passed. Then someone else came in and paid a $7 billion valuation. And we passed again. And now we can buy it in the secondary market, you know, closer to where we originally had wanted to buy it. So many opportunities for us in the secondary. And then also many opportunities for us to lead rounds as some of the larger private equity guys like Toma Bravo, Bravo and Tiger, et cetera, have moved out of the space. So I know I, I went on a long thing there, but pretty excited about some of the things ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a lot of panic and gloom and doom on, you know, crypto Twitter. Um, you know, the, the attendance at Bitcoin Miami was down by about a half. Still pretty robust. You know, that's the thing that I think people don't really 
like understand, which is that, yeah, we're down from the high, but from two to three years ago, everything is a astronomical. Yeah. When did you come to the realization that digital assets were what you needed to do and focus solely on oh, that? Yeah. Well, that's a bit of a longer story, but I had started a gold company in 0809 called GBI, uh, Gold Bullion International, sells physical bars, gold and silver. Today is the third largest vaulter of gold in the world outside of the banking system. And my co-founder partner, still the CEO of that business today. So it was in 2014. Again, I'd stopped managing money in 2012. And you know, to focus a little more on this business and another business that I'd started with Stan Druckenmiller. And in 14, that business, GBI, integrated with a company called BitReserve, which today is the Uphold Wallet. And we were the first place in the world that you could buy or sell gold to buy or sell Bitcoin and Ripple. And so my company was making money from those transactions, but I didn't really understand Bitcoin to be honest, I tried to read that white paper, Satoshi white paper. It was impossible. I'm not a cryptographer. I, I'm not a coder. It was terrible at math back in the day. It just, I couldn't figure it out. And I, I'm like, yeah, it's a cool idea. But, you know, and I, I bought a little and played around with it, but I never, you know, really got stuck in. And then what happened was five years later, you know, I watched the whole thing go up and down. I'm killing my shooting myself the whole way. Oh my gosh. You know, I was there in 14. Uh, I knew about it and I just couldn't get the conviction up to take a big position. And then in 2018, the market collapsed. Remember, we had the peak in 17. Bitcoin and Ethereum went down 85%. And so in the traditional markets, I'd seen that many times where markets had massive moves up and then dropped. 85%. And what happens after that is usually the asset goes to zero or it's the buying opportunity for the next bull run. So I said to myself, Bitcoin was around 4,000. And I said, all right, I'm going to lock myself in my office in Greenwich, in my house, and I'm not coming out until I figure this out. I spent six months, literally 10 hours a day, reading, listening to podcasts. And then I finally got it. And of course, I beat myself up for being a complete idiot for not getting it in 14. But what I had missed was that the Satoshi white paper was actually the result of 40 years of cryptographic research and really scientific research. And I had no idea that this Byzantine generals problem uh, was a thing. I mean, I wasn't, wasn't a mathematician, as I said, like who even knew, frankly, that that was a problem that you know math students sat around for who knows years and years trying to solve and basically this eight page white paper is a very elegant solution to the byzantine generals problem of course the problem of distributed trust how do two counterparties trust each other without an intermediary how do they send value back and forth to each other without an intermediary so when i understood that that it solved this unsolvable problem I thought, oh my goodness, this thing is worth trillions, if not tens of trillions of dollars and will change and reform the existing financial system 
the architecture and infrastructure of the existing financial system. And then I thought, you know, in one day, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or all of the various successful blockchains, will all one day hold all things of value, right? And I think, and that's sort of what got me excited that this was the digitization of money and value. And I, I got that. The internet was for information and ideas. You know, the Bitcoin network was the core asset and the key, uh, the code being the key to solving that problem that allowed for a distributed network of value. And so, again, it took me to, to summarize it in 30 seconds, like I just did. It took me six months, a lot of pain, a lot of listening, but I got it. And then in the middle of 19, I thought, look, I own my Bitcoin and Ethereum. What do I do now? I want to own the companies in the space that are successful. I'm not a venture capitalist. I'm not a technologist. I don't want to compete with Andreessen and Polychain and Paradigm and all of these really smart Silicon Valley guys. But I'm a decent investor and I know a bad deal when I see one. And I know a bad CEO when I see one. And I thought, all right, let's build a portfolio basically for myself, I was thinking. And um, I ended up uh, coming up with this name originally of 10T, which stands for 10 trillion. And where does that come from? That comes from the idea that the value of the ecosystem, which in the middle of 19 was 300 billion, that's all the value of all the cryptocurrency and the value of all the equity in the space was 300 billion. And I said to myself, where can this really go? And so I said, look, realistically, it can definitely get to 10 trillion, 10T. That's a 30X in the life of the fund in 10 years. And so I thought to myself, no one is ever going to believe that I call the 30X call in 10 years unless I put it into the name of my fund. And so I wanted to have it stamped, not necessarily on the blockchain, probably would have been better. But in the name of the fund, to have it stamped there. And actually now, today, we're at 1.7 trillion. And last year at the peak, we were at 3.2 trillion. So we had done a 10x in only two and a half years as yeah. of last uh, at the peak. And it's still up five or six x. That's why I say that these people in the, especially the traditional press, who are so negative about the space, don't really understand uh, and haven't done the work just how vibrant it is and how many different things are going on. And even on Bitcoin now, you've got ordinals, you've got lightning picking up, so many exciting things in the space. Yeah, I mean, the innovation in the space is, is incredible, really. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So it'd be great to get, I mean, it's been a crazy year or so, lots of things happening. Marcus obviously crashed all over the, everything sort of crashed, you know, crypto, uh, especially growth stocks. It seems like only you know, anyone's have survived with the, the big tech mega caps. Uh, what, what's your outlook today going forward? Yeah. yeah, I'm quite bullish. I'm bullish on tech stocks. I'm bullish on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'm bullish on the continued growth in the digital asset ecosystem. I think the low, essentially, as I mentioned before, came in in Q4. 
on the worst possible news that we could have had. That's after one year bear market that took many things down 70, 80, 90%. In the traditional markets, I think, you know, the Fed is over tightened. The invertedness of the yield curve is something I've been expecting for a while. And it tells you that the Fed has over tightened. I expect growth and inflation to come down every quarter for the remainder of the year and longer. All the leading indicators that I look at tell me that that's what's going to happen. And frankly, I think, I don't want to say it's like the easiest cycle I've seen to call, but even if the Fed raises again 25 basis points or whatever it is, I suspect within the next 6, 12, 18 months, they'll be easing again. The growth data, the inflation data, you know, I posted something on Twitter yesterday that's a chart of what's called trueflation. And trueflation is just a, an independent um, monitor of what they believe is the true inflation rate. A year ago, that was 12% for them. We never hit that high, but today it's three. And the fact that you have 10 year notes at 3.5 and you know the Fed funds at five or a little higher just tells you that the markets don't believe that the Fed policy is sustainable. That's number one. And number two, we just got hit with probably the single largest deflationary event in history, which is the advent of, you know, I would call applicable AI, ChatGPT4, and now the hundreds of applications on top that are really changing things. We already have companies that are uh, laying off people that are increasing, you know, their efficiencies increasing in their businesses. People tell me, oh, AI is not going to hit for another three, five years. No, no, it's hitting now. It's hitting today. And productivity will go up. Unfortunately, unemployment will go up a little bit. But this is going to put a, a dramatic you know, pressure on, I think, wages and just prices more generally. You can do a lot more now with your people. And look, even my investor letter that I put out last week my analyst who puts it together, who I've made sort of head of AI, he used AI to write the letter. And in fact, the one page that we wrote on AI, you know, AI's impact on blockchain, crypto, Web3 businesses, we wrote with AI. So, I mean, it, it saved a, a tremendous amount of time. I just think it's, it's something very new and therefore underappreciated. You know, and and I think JP Morgan recently put out a study showing that a lot of the gains uh, in the tech, uh, in the NASDAQ, the leading stocks, has come as a result of, you know, the markets trying to discount the impact of AI on our new world. So I think it's pretty exciting. Uh, I think the lows are in. I have a pretty high degree of confidence that by the end of the year, all the markets I mentioned will be in higher prices that's by the end of December than they are today. That doesn't mean we can't have like a sell in May go away situation over the summer. You know, the markets always like to worry about things in August and September and October. You know, it's just the way things are. But I'm pretty sure that by the end of the year, the backdrop will be even more favorable than it is today. And do you think we'll have to return to a world of zero interest rates? Is that where the future lies? Oh, I, don't, I don't know about zero, but I think we could go pretty darn low. You know, one, two. Look, the 10-year is already, it's a three and a half. So do I think the 10-year could get down to two and a half or two? Sure. You know, absolutely. 
you know, uh, could it get lower? It, it's certainly possible. It's certainly very possible. And what about the the dollar? I know um, Stan recently said he, he yeah, you know, I think he's got a quite a hefty short on the dollar at the moment. Is that your sort of perception? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the inversion in the yield curve and the significant drop in some of the key macro indicators, the leading indicators, pretty much give you a signal that the beginning of the dollar bear market started pretty much at the low um, when euro was at what, 98, 99. That to me was the low. So every, every bit of strength that you have in the euro, I think going forward is an opportunity to uh, sell the dollar because I don't see short rates being able to stay here for any uh, you know, demonstrable period of time. So I think that's the right call. And this um, narrative that's been sort of taken hold of the dollar losing its reserve currency status, is that something you believe? Yeah, that, that's a bridge too far for me. I mean, you know, there are a lot of other currencies that are a lot crappier than the dollar. <laughs> um, and the dollar is really, yeah, I, I mean, even look, there's an argument to be made that the Fed you know, will eventually lose some credibility given their over-tightening. I just don't understand why we need to put people out of work to manage the macroeconomic cycle, right? Like, I know the unemployment rate is low, but like putting people out of work as a way to control the CPI number just seems like a 20th century kind of policy structure. And, you know, I think a rethinking on on how we manage the cycle uh, is needed. And I'm not really sure that eight guys sitting around a table in DC who aren't market people, they're not. They're not people who have experience in trading and investing in markets. They're bureaucrats, they're economists, they're academics. I just don't see why it is that those people are managing the cycle. I mean, to be honest, someone like Druckenmiller, you know, really has the skill set I mean, maybe he wouldn't argue that. I, I really don't know. But um, certainly a market participant with 20, 30 years experience, I think, would have done a better job in pretty much you know, any case going back in the last 20 years. I, I think Greenspan did a wonderful job. But after that, I mean, I, I think you know, even Bernanke, there were tremendous problems in 07 that ended up precipitating 08. Uh, he eventually got the story right, but yeah. And with all this uh, chaos that has happened from the Federal Reserve, do you think um, everyone will ever trust them again to manage their money? Yeah, I mean, look, look, I, I think it takes a lot for structural institutional change, right? So is there a better way to do this? Yeah, I, I think so. Look. Thinking that the dollar is going to lose its value, I mean, I'll tell you this. I can think of a scenario where, let's say, not today, but in two, three years from now, we have younger people running the country that is America. We have people who are a little forward thinking. And let's say that they start to understand that the stable coin uh, business is at its infancy and is going to grow. Understand that there was $8 trillion settled last year uh, in stable coins. And so that would be a wonderful opportunity 
to cement the dollar's position globally if the U.S. authorities actually understood that the dollar could be at the center, along with Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you know, but the dollar could be at the center of the digital space by encouraging the growth of dollar stable coins. I mean, it wouldn't matter almost what the Fed would be doing. You know, I'm talking from a more longer term uh, basis, right? The, the problem now is that maybe there are other currencies that see the digital world as the future, and maybe they start to encourage and grow the stablecoin business with their currency as a backing. So that would be a way, for instance, that the dollar you know, could, without any doubt, claim sort of supremacy in the world uh, currency and and you know, within the digital asset uh, ecosystem. Right now, the, the U.S. is going the other way. So I think that there are a lot of factors when you talk about U.S. Yeah. dollar losing its primacy. I just, it's, it's a bridge too far for me. Yeah, I don't see why you can't have, the dollar will be in competition with Bitcoin. It'll be in competition with other assets that are in the digital asset ecosystem. And I don't think competition is bad. I mean, look, the reality is the dollar is down 99.9% against Bitcoin over the last 12 years. So you tell me, has the dollar lost its, you know, maybe it's lost its primacy versus Bitcoin already? Literally, if you bought Bitcoin 12 years ago, right, $4, your dollars went down 99.9%. In fact, all of your assets, if you'd bought the S&P 500, uh, if you'd bought any asset in the world, it's down 99% against Bitcoin. So people don't really realize that. If they did, you know, maybe they would diversify a little bit into Bitcoin, which is, I think, would be a smart maneuver for people. What about, do you think there's a future where central bank digital currencies exist? Yeah, they'll definitely exist, you know, but a free market of value is a very interesting concept and hopefully realization. So there's no reason why any country can't have a central bank digital currency, which to me is sort of a little bit of an offshoot of a stable coin that's backed by a country's currency. And again, managed by the central bank. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They can do that. But you also have the uh, option to opt out of that and own Bitcoin and Ethereum and dollar or whatever it is that you want to own. And I think this is what's so exciting about certainly the fund that I'm building now and the companies that we're investing in is they're building this entire future, this world of digital value. So I don't see why a competitive landscape is a problem. Like, so what? Let the central banks do their CBDC and people will either invest in it or not, right? (laughs) And, you know, if they have to use it to transact, that doesn't mean they have to use it to hold their savings in, right? I mean, often you hear that Bitcoin is a savings technology. It really is. You know, Ethereum is more, 
I think, programmable money. Now, Bitcoin is showing that it can be that too. But I think that there are going to be blockchains that have specific use cases. You don't need the insane, incredible security that Bitcoin provides. I mean, Bitcoin is completely unhackable. At the moment, it's a little slower than some of the other chains. But you know, when you really care about security, when you're sending that billion-dollar transaction vis-a-vis Bitcoin from, I don't know, New York to Frankfurt or whatever it is, it's okay if it takes an extra minute or whatever it is. It's pretty much direct. But there are things that you don't need Bitcoin for. You know, if you're going to buy coffee, I don't really think you need Bitcoin. I mean, you can send it over the Lightning Network. I think that's wonderful. But I just see a world where you have a lot of specialty blockchains, one used for, you know, maybe you end up having a world where real assets are tokenized. And maybe it's too expensive to tokenize them on Bitcoin. Maybe, you know, maybe Ethereum is a better platform. Maybe, you know, there there are different chains that are going to be useful for NFTs. So I see this whole big world of value. And I think central bank digital currencies have a place. But remember, we have the option, you know, not to put our savings in those, right? So that to me is, you know, not such a horrible thing. I mean, I, I know people are panicked and worried about central bank digital currencies, but I think it's just a natural progression. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And so coming back to the digital asset ecosystem, what are the, some of the most promising innovations you're seeing in the space at the moment that you think might get the most traction soon or just provide the most value? Well, what I would say, yeah, what I would say is this, is that there is tremendous innovation happening at all times. I mean, we now have ordinals on Bitcoin, which is, you know, is some form of, you know, inscriptions. I wouldn't necessarily call them NFTs. That didn't exist two months ago, right? So the fees that the miners are making on Bitcoin has gone up, you know, their incentive to monitor and validate, you know, the blockchains, the transactions on those blockchains has gone up. And it wasn't like that two and a half, you know, two months ago. But I would step back for a second and say, okay, why is it valuable for people to own, you know, to put three to 5% of their portfolio into the space? In the last three years, you've had the stablecoin business move from zero to, as I mentioned already, $8 trillion in value settled uh, just last year. You've got the world of DeFi. You've got about 40, 50 billion locked, TVL locked in uh, DeFi. That's a tremendous, yes, it's down from the high of what, 150, 180 billion, but that was zero two and a half years ago. So people don't step back. That's a tremendous innovation. The metaverse NFT blockchain gaming space, again, zero three years ago, um, I think is a tremendous, you know, potential for growth, all sorts of ways to apply NFTs. And you're starting to see traditional businesses actually try to incorporate blockchain into their business models. You know, you saw Starbucks partnership with Polygon three years ago. You never would have seen that, right? And then I always mention this crazy one, the California State DMV Department of Motor Vehicles, which is probably as uneconomic 
an uncapitalistic organization as you could think of, they're going to be putting people's licenses on the Tezos blockchain. I mean, just that's crazy, right? I mean, it's just crazy. That's new. It's it's innovation happening all the time. So DeFi, stable coins, NFTs, blockchain gaming, they go on and on. And people are wondering, like, oh, where's the innovation? I'm like, you gotta be kidding. At the end of the last bear market in 2018, there was none of this stuff. People were worried. Ethereum went down to $90. People were worrying that ETH and Bitcoin were going to go to zero, all right, at the end of the last. You're not hearing that now. And so, unfortunately, the traditional media has failed to do the work. You know, they don't understand the space. In fact, I haven't read a single article by any journalist that I think understands the breadth and scope of the innovation that's happening. And that misinformation, I think, has been leading directly into the authorities, the regulators in Washington, D.C. And if you now look globally, you look at Dubai, you look at Singapore, you look at these places, Zug in Switzerland, um, these places are encouraging the growth of companies that are in the digital asset ecosystem. You even see the UK, I've heard in the next six months, is going to be coming out with a framework that uh, companies and then, you know, protocols, early stage protocols for them to set up business there. And so, look, I don't necessarily want to blame the journalists in a way from the traditional world. Because this is hard stuff. Like, this is hard to understand. I get it. They've got lots of things going on. But you really need to read things like Blockworks, The Block, you know, Cointelegraph. You really need, these are the, you know, I think budding sources of information that people should be focused on, should be reading, should be learning, going to these conferences that are out there. And, um, you know, for the moment in the U.S., they're just behind the rest of the world. And part, also part of the reason is the U.S. hasn't really ever understood currency. Um, you know, the average retail investor thinks about NASDAQ, right? They're not thinking about the dollar. And, you know, you go to somewhere like Australia, where we have a lot of investors, you know, everyone knows where the Australian dollar is trading against the dollar. They also are big investors in gold, so they understand store of value. And it's also a country that looks out beyond its borders. It's a gigantic piece of land, uh, almost an island. It is an island. They look out and they look towards innovation. And they're risk takers as well. And so you have people around the world who get it, right? And I even haven't gone into this whole concept of banking the unbanked right? Um, for people living in the emerging world where you don't have proper fiscal and monetary policy, cryptocurrency is a godsend. And they're not calling it Web3. They're not calling it blockchain uh, technology. They're calling it cryptocurrency. And holding cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or something else that they like, is ultimately a much better savings technology for them than their local 
Turkey, Argentina, Venezuela. I mean, we can, Nigeria, go down the list of countries around the world. Yeah. So why people don't get this, that it's a, a benefit for the entire world, uh, is really beyond me. I mean, how can, how can it be that I am the only growth equity guy with an investment track record in the space, investing $1.2 billion? It's got to be that there are guys out there who invest in private businesses, technology businesses, other types of businesses, payments businesses who see the value here. But, you know, so far it's been very slow. As, I mean, that baffles me as well. I couldn't believe that. I mean, it's grown so large as well, right? So you would have thought a lot of people have they had time to get involved. It's been quite a number of years now since it started, really started to get going. You've got a few of your um, investments from 10T are in the NFT space. I thought maybe you could just touch on what interested you about Yuga Labs, Doodles, things like this. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Animoca. Animoca is our largest position by far. Animoca, to me, if you're going to own only one business in the blockchain gaming metaverse NFT space, it's Animoca. They have a broad, diversified, also portfolio of venture type investments, over 300 of them. They made more revenue in 22 than in 21. If you think about that, everyone's complaining about the bear market and how diabolical it is, et cetera. Yet this company you know, made multiples, actually, of revenue in 22 versus 21. They have a guy at the helm, the chairman, founder, CEO. Well, yeah, um, I think he's an active chairman. Um, they have someone else who acts as the CEO, but who's very involved. Yatsu, I mean, Yat is a visionary. Yat is defining even what the open metaverse is. You know, we've invested over $150 million into that company alone between the funds and the co-invests. I just think many different verticals in that business, operational as well as investment, I mean, essentially, they they buy games from the traditional world, video games, and they, I would say, blockchainify them. They've also moved into sort of more innovative new uses uh, for NFTs. Tiny Tap, they were calling it EdTech, just had a massively successful drop. I don't know if you uh, followed that. So for me, as an investor that just wants to get broad exposure to the space, because yeah. I am not going to be able to pick, you know, which blockchain is going to be successful or which, you know, venture business. I just know that if this space is going to grow as I think it is, uh, I'm pretty sure Animoca is going to be at the center of it. So that is by far the largest investment. Yuga, um, Yuga is very interesting. We invested through an SPV. I just think that there's an innovation in marketing there. That is something that I have never seen before. You know, not only did they get famous people to buy for hundreds of thousands, these bored apes, they then, those famous people, okay, and we added this up in our analysis that of the top bored ape holders, they had over a billion followers on Instagram and uh, Twitter, over a billion people that board apes you know speak to so yeah. if you can imagine that you have a company like yuga they ordinarily to get an audience of a billion people 
you'd have to pay some of those superstars tens of millions of dollars. And so they have a model, a business model, where stars pay them, essentially, for you know, these PFPs. Then they advertise how much they're part of the board aid community, yeah. right? So they have built a community for zero yeah. cost. Now, again, you can say what you will about whether you think NFTs have any utility, this and that, whatever it is. But there's a very strong community that has a huge reach. And you know what's the most incredible thing is they built that community in one year. So I think it's the fastest, certainly, growth to reaching a billion people in the history of the world. So that was my initial like light bulb moment. Um, on Yuga. But look, we write 50 to 70 page investment memos about each of our companies. We share them with our LPs. We spend months of work on most of our investments. We have some very small investments where we may do a little less work. But, you know, we have half the funds of the 1.2 billion. We have around 600. That's funds and co-invest in Ledger, Anamoka, Deribit, you know, those are pretty significant, you know, and Kraken. So yeah. those four companies have almost half of our total assets. And I'm very, uh, I am comfortable that those companies, from where we purchase them, will make multiples of return. But I see other companies today that didn't even exist three, four years ago that we're going to invest in as soon as we have our first close in July. And I think, you know, the fund will stay open pretty much the entire year until hopefully we hit, you know, a billion dollar target. So many opportunities for us right now. Super excited, really. Well, Dan, this has been great to get your insights on the, on the blockchain industry. I thought just before uh, we, we wrap it up, is there any themes at all that you uh, are interesting you the most in the blockchain specific industry that you think? Uh, a lot of people might not have heard of, but it's going to come soon. Yeah, I think one thing that hasn't happened yet that is probably going to happen now is this tokenization of real-world yeah. assets. And whether you whether real-world assets are GP stakes of private equity funds, which is sort of happening, or whether it's real estate, or whether it's... There's a lot of focus on it. One of the companies we own, Figure, um, Mike Cagney is excellent CEO, you know, also the founder of SoFi. He's built a great organization, lots of passion. You know, there are a few companies out there, but I would say that is in the very, very beginning of the first inning. It hasn't happened yet. I think over the next three years, we're going to see it. To me, this is part of this broader concept of the tokenization of value. Then, of course, all value becomes fungible with each other. There's an easy, you know, single immediate transaction. And that, you know, that's the holy grail. So we're moving towards that. It's taking a little longer maybe than some of us expected. Um, But in another way, it's for me at least happening faster than I anticipated in terms of the growth. And I just think, you know, the people on Twitter and, The space has become, and I'll leave you with this comment, I think the space has become 
much bigger and broader. It's not anymore just about the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yes, it's better if Bitcoin is 50,000 than 30,000, um, but the growth in the space, also the number of developers from the outside world who have been coming into the blockchain space, you know, hit an all-time high last year. And so they continue to ignore also, you know, the, the, the price of the underlying. It's still very high. As I said to you, uh, at the early, uh, early 19, which is only four years ago, Ethereum was $90. Today, it's $1,800. I mean, it's just gargantuan. You know, it's a up, that's up 20 times. So people are like, oh, it's horrible in this space. No, it's not. <laughs> Have some perspective. Zoom out a little bit and just stay focused on what you're doing. Stay building. Stay focused. You know, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. And uh, where can people find you. you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on DTAPCAP, which is my, one of my businesses, one of my companies that uh, own stakes. And um, of course, on LinkedIn as well. And One Roundtable Partners, you know, we have a website, 1RT Fund, 10T Holdings. We also have a website there, 10TFund.com. So you can see, you know, what we're doing. And also, what, you know, what, what the future uh, holds for us. It's all there, super transparent about everything we're doing. Thanks, Dan. We'll keep those links in the show notes for everyone. But yeah, thanks for a lovely conversation. Cheers, Dan. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.